Well, it's good to see all of you here today. Welcome to New Life. And if this is your very first time with us today, you're joining us online for the very first time, man, welcome. It's so great to see all of you here. And again, if it's your first time, I hope your first time turns into a second visit and the second turns into a third. And eventually you're just going to find that this is where God wants you to be. And this year, church family, we would love to have you here and join us. Hey, before we go to the word though, let me just share with you a couple things. I want to reiterate something that was said in the announcement video. Around you in the seats, some of you are going to see little cards that say trunk or treat. Do you see those sitting around? You guys grab one of those? Those are invite cards to this year's trunk or treat. We want you to find somebody that maybe it's a neighbor or maybe it's a coworker. It's like, hey, I want to tell you about our trunk or treat. Trunk or treat is one of those outreach events we do every year that's just wildly successful. In, in the years past, what happens is, is we decorate our building and people decorate outside. And sometimes we do the trunks where they come in and get candy. Other times they come walk through our building. We try to create things from time to time that bring people onto our campus. Trunk or treat is one of those. With the coronavirus that's happening right now, and this is the way the world is right at this moment, which I don't believe it's going to be like this forever, but where it is right now, we're going to have to change this event just a little bit. So this is a trunk or treat drive-through. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. This is a drive-through. We're looking to have about 40 trunks, 40 participants, who will decorate their trunk, open it up, and we're going to create this drive-through lane through our building, or excuse me, through our, not through our building, through our parking lot. Now that would be a good one. Through our parking lot, and the, the plans that have been put out for this, I mean, it is going to be wild and awesome. And I'm tell, I've been telling our staff, this is going to be the greatest trunk or treat ever. You know why? Because dads, you can dress up your kids, put them in the car, and you don't have to get them out. You just buckle them up, and you drive slowly through this lane, through our parking lot, and it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be fun. Your kids are going to go home with candy, and then you get to pull out of our parking lot and go home. Now, isn't that awesome? I mean, I mean, you don't have to get out at all. You don't have to walk around. You don't even have to, but anyway, in all seriousness, I think this is going to be one of the biggest trunk or treats we've ever had, and our big deal about this is we want people to be on our campus for something, and here's why. Because at some point, you know, we're expecting a couple thousand people through here that night. Not all of them go to church. Not all of them know Jesus. But at some point, something's going to happen, and some of them are going to say, you know what, we should go to church. It just seems like the right thing to do. You know, we should try church out. Where do you want to go? You know what? Why don't we go to that church that gave out candy, and we drove through their parking lot? Why don't we give them a try? And you know what? Believe it or not, there are folks here, part of our church family, who have become Christians because they walked through our building one night at Trunk of Tree. Here, here's case in point. Um, Sarah Q, a lot of you know Sarah Q, right? She's intricately involved in our children's ministry. In fact, she's our interim leader in children's ministry right now. Do you know how her family found our church? They came to a Trunk of Tree. And they said, you know what, we, you know, what church should we look at? We don't go to church. Where should we go? Let's go to that church that had trunk or treat. Now she's intricately connected, her whole family and our church family. That's how they found us. So friends, there's people you know, there's relationships you have, people that this is a simple way to invite them to church, and I hope that you'll take advantage of our trunk or treat. Also, men's retreat's coming up. Like I said, please register for that. Also, want to let you know, October is here, and we welcome two new elders to our eldership, Robin Corder and Wally Kaminsky. So thank you for participating in that whole process. We welcome them to our eldership. And finally, I just want to say a big thank you to our youth pastor, Taylor Duke, for stepping in and preaching for me last week and continuing our series, Old School. I appreciate him doing that and taking on on that challenging topic. Um, as you know, this series we've been in old school, we've been talking about faith. What does that look like? 
And we've been looking in the Old Testament at a season in Israel's history known as the Babylonian captivity. This is where we meet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and names like that. It was a 70-year period where God allowed the Israelites to be punished for their disobedience and their rebellion. And so the Babylonians came in and conquered the Israelites. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and they, they hauled all of these Israelites to hundreds of miles away to, to Babylon. And, and, and they enslaved them, if you will, for 70 years. But in that, we saw these great examples of faith, like Daniel, who was a man who had great conviction. He wouldn't defile himself with the king's food. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't bow down to the image the king had made. And they showed us that, whew, I'm popping, I think. They showed us that faith, their, their faith would not blend in with society or nothing like that. We saw how Daniel was thrown in the lion's den because he was public with his faith. He's like, the laws of the land can change, but my faith and God does not change. And in many ways, I find a lot of similarities to that season and this season that we are in right now. Things are changing all around us, but what doesn't change? Our faith in God does not change. We are going to live by what I call an old school faith, which I describe as a no bells or whistles, classic and proven, tried and true. We're just going to be Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. That's what we are going to be. And these stories from the Old Testament inspire us. They spur us along to have this kind of faith. And I mentioned, I don't think things were that much different than they are for us today. You look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we've been studying about uh, quite intensely. I mean, their world changed overnight. Things changed during their lives, but their faith in God didn't. And you know what? I think a lot of us would agree that we look out at our world today, and doesn't it feel like things are changing rapidly? My wife and I have this conversation often that uh, the America that we were raised in, doesn't it feel quite a bit different than the America we're trying to raise our children in? It, it feels different in many ways. In many ways, it's the same. But we look out and we go, what is going on? And we have sometimes, we have these thoughts like, oh, I don't like that. Or I don't understand what's happening there. Or have you had this thought? Oh my goodness, if that happens, we're doomed. Have that thought lately? The world changes. In fact, the world changes all the time. But do you know what doesn't change? Our old school faith in the Lord. That does not change because our God doesn't change and we are going to stay faithful in what we believe. Now, last week, Pastor Taylor, he kind of started us down this road of what I would call the next phase in our old school series. He told you about how the king, after 70 years, made a decision. That, you know what, any of you Jewish people that want to go back home to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple and rebuild your home, you're welcome to go. And about 50,000 people left. And so P Pastor Taylor talked about that where they went home, they built the altar, and they built the temple, and they showed this real old school faith of saying, hey, we're not going to go back and make the same mistakes that we did that got us into this mess it's kind of like, imagine, we as Americans, if we were conquered by a foreign nation, and that we were dragged out of America, and we were made to live in their country. And for 70 years, that's where we had to live, and we had to do what they wanted us to do, and we had to obey their rules and their leadership. And we went ahead and got married, and we had families and grandchildren, and kind of lived our lives and eventually integrated into that new country. But after 70 years of that, the, the king of that country says, you know what, all you Americans who want to go back to the United States and rebuild your home, you're welcome to go. In fact, I'll provide boats and planes and resources and money for you to go do that. It's the same kind of thing. 
That was what the Jews were allowed to do, and about 50,000 of them left. But the majority of them chose to stay behind. They had already integrated into the new Persian culture. You know, the captivity was technically over, but they were still living in exile. But they just chose to stay. So Pastor Taylor talked about the 50,000 who went home. What I'm going to talk about today is all those Jews who stayed behind and just chose to integrate into the Persian life. And out of that, we have these other stories that rise up that show us what old school faith looks like. And one of those true stories surrounds a woman by the name of Esther. Have you heard of her before? Esther. In fact, there's a book of the Bible named after her. It's in the Old Testament. I'd like for you to go ahead and find that book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's the book of Esther. And while you are finding the book of Esther, let me show you a picture on the screen behind me. And I'm going to test your movie knowledge here. Who is this? How many of you raise a hand? Who knows who this is? Okay, on the shout of three, let's shout it out. On the count of three, tell me who it is. One, two, three. That's right. This is Little Orphan Annie. Now, this is a screen grab from, um, from the 1982 movie. It's a musical named Annie. Now, this is a story. Annie is a story we've grown up with, right? Isn't this like the epitome of the rags to riches story? A little orphan girl through a... a, a just a number of crazy incidents. What happens? She goes to live with Daddy Warbucks, who is this rich guy who absolutely changes her life. And this musical, how many of you guys know the music to this movie? My wife loves the music from this movie. In fact, I'm gonna give you a little insight into our marriage, okay? There are times that I get down in the dumps. Do you get down in the dumps sometimes? I sometimes get down in the dumps. Sometimes I like to have a little pity party, okay? There are times that things don't go the way I think it should go, and I'm kind of like, Oh, this is not any good. You know how you get. We get that way sometimes. It's in those moments that my wife has great sympathy for me. <laughs> and she'll come and she'll sing to me. She'll see, sing things like this. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow. You know the song, right? I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it one bit especially when she sings it to me because I just want to be angry. She'll also sing songs to me when I'm down in the dumps like this. It's a hard knock life for you. It's a hard knock life for you. I don't like that song either. It's her way of looking at me saying, suck it up, buttercup, because it's going to be fine and, and get out of this funk that you're in. So this movie, you know, it, it, it means something to our family for sure. But I show this movie to this picture to you because... This picture of little orphan Annie, you, you know who she reminds me of? She reminds me of another orphan, little orphan Esther, who is also a very rags-to-riches story in the Bible where she came from nothing to become what? The, 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 the queen of the greatest country in the known world at that time. And something that strikes me about little orphan Annie from the movie, isn't she a little girl that does not afraid? She's not afraid to speak her mind at all. I mean, she speaks up and she calls it how she sees it. Well, little orphan Esther, when she becomes queen, she is gonna have to be somebody who is not afraid to speak her mind either. She will have to step up and she'll have to confront the king on something going on in the world. And in doing so, will save her entire people, but she'll put her life on the line at the same time. Esther's life story comes about about 30 years after those 50,000 Jewish people go home to rebuild 
Jerusalem. So they go home, they start to build their temple. Fast forward 30 years, we have a new king in Persia. His name is King Xerxes. And we know a lot about King Xerxes from history. He was the most powerful man in the world at this time. He was known for his extravagance. He was known for his recklessness. King Xerxes was known in history as a king who loved to party, and he liked to party for days. And it's at one of these parties, something happens that, that propels Esther to the limelight and sets her life down a different path. So you got the book of Esther open. We're gonna start in chapter one, but I wanna let you know, we're gonna be bouncing around through this book of the Bible quite a bit this morning. And most of it is going to go unread. So I'm going to challenge you sometime today or tomorrow, go back and read the entire story of Esther from the book of Esther. You will not be disappointed, I promise you. Let's look at verse 10 of chapter 1. This is at the tail end of one of her husband's elaborate parties. And it says this. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine. That's the Bible's way of saying he got plastered, all right? He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and I'm not going to try to pronounce their names, so skip to verse 11. He commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Okay, so you get the picture, right? He's had this drunken bash for several days, and at the end of this party, they're like, you know what? The queen is a beautiful woman. Let's get her out here so we can look at her. Now, first of all, I don't know what kind of husband would ever think about doing something like that to his wife, but listen, this is a very depraved season. This is a very depraved people we're talking about here. Most Bible scholars agree that this command for the queen to present herself wearing the royal crown was a command that meant this. You show up in your crown and nothing else. That was the command. So here's what happens. Look at verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and he burned with anger. And I like this queen, don't you? This is a queen that's got some conviction about her. This is a queen who's like, I'm not gonna do that. I am not gonna be made some kind of object for you and your drunken buddies just to stare at. This is not going to happen. And she refuses to come and this angers the king. Now you gotta understand, this is during a time in history that if you refuse to do what the king told you to do, yet was a punishable crime by death. And people who refused to do what the king commanded, they were executed. So this is his wife saying to him, you know what, I would rather die than do that. You know, that's exactly, I would rather die than do what you're telling me to do. Oh, I like this queen. She's got some conviction. Well, this angered her husband. And so actually, if you can even imagine this happening, he calls his leadership together and they got to make a decision. Do I kill my wife or what do we do about this? She can't just tell me she's not going to do what I tell her to do. And so this is the decision. He decides not to kill her, but instead he banishes her from the country and they make a decision that they're gonna go on a countrywide search for a brand new queen. And if you read the biblical account, there was only one requirement for the new queen. And do you know what that would be? The new queen has to be drop dead gorgeous. You can read it, it's right there. It doesn't say drop dead gorgeous, those are my words. But the Bible says that, that her beauty must be unmatched. That's, that's my way of saying she's got to be drop-dead gorgeous. And all the men in here are going like, I knew we picked the right day to come back to church. This is a great story. And all the women in here are like, give me a break. You know that a man's in charge. This is crazy, you know. 
this is a depraved season. I'm just going to tell you something. When you remove God out of all your decisions, when God's not a part of the leadership of your country, when God has no role in it, this is the result. You get things like this. What is absolutely appalling to us becomes common practice. This is what it looks like when God's removed. So the king, what he does is he sends all of his aides all throughout the country, and they are looking for the most beautiful women who will compete in a contest to become the queen of Persia. Friends, if reality TV was a thing back here, this would make a great reality TV show. And if you were selected to be a part of this beauty contest to become the next queen, you did not have a choice whether you participated or not. It's not like one of the king's aides would come to your family and say, we're gonna take your daughter because she has a chance to become the next queen. And if the, and if the woman says, no, I don't wanna participate, she had no choice. She, she, was, she was taken away from her family to be a part of this. She was given to a man named Haggai who served the king and it was his job to get all these women for this contest ready to pre be presented. And this is where we meet little orphan Esther in the Bible. She is one of those young, beautiful women that one of the king's aides takes notice of and says, you are coming with me. Now, let me give you a little backstory about Esther. Here's what we know about her. She was an orphan. Her parents were killed, but it doesn't mean she didn't have family. She was raised by her older cousin, whose name was Mordecai. In fact, Mordecai didn't really see himself as her older cousin. He kind of adopted her and took on the fatherly role. And so as you read about the relationship in Esther, it feels more like father-daughter, not older cousin, younger cousin. Mordecai is very protective of her. He does not like this at all. What father would like this for his daughter? And so Mordecai is very protective and he tells Esther, Esther, no matter what you do, do not tell anybody that you are a Jew. Now think about this. She's still living in exile. She's part of the Jewish people who have tried to integrate, but very much culturally separate. And Mordecai says, don't tell him you're a Jew. Look at chapter two, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. I like Mordecai too. Mordecai's like the dad who's like, okay, I can't stop you from taking my daughter, but guess what? I'm be hanging out by the gate every day and you're gonna have to answer to me and I want you to know that I'm gonna be close by and, and, and don't you mess with my daughter. That's, what, that's the impression I get. How many of you dads with daughters going, you know what, right there, I, you know, they're not taking my daughter. We're, we're you know, th this is Mordecai, okay? He's very protective. So here's what's happening to Esther. She gets put in this beauty contest and she needs to be prepared for 12 months, okay? It's gonna take 12 months to get her and all these other women ready. And so for the next 12 months, they live in, and really, they live in a beauty salon. The, the Bible talks about oil and myrrh facials, you know, that, that these treatments that they would get. I'm sure there were deep tissue massages, there were uh, perfume and cosmetic treatments. I'm sure yoga and Pilates classes were being taught in there. You know, I mean, get this. There were nutritious meals prepared for Esther and all these other women every day that was specifically designed to enhance her beauty. She was given for an entire year seven female attendants to wait on her every need and desire. And some of you ladies are like, man, sign me up for that contest. Man, I would like to, you know, all of this. This sounds great. 
12 months this goes on. And then finally, at the end of that 12 months, all of these women are ready to be presented to the king and for him to make his choice to be the next queen. And these women get paraded out there in front of the, queen, of the king. And when he sees Esther, he's like, contest over, game over. I know who it's going to be. All of you other ladies, thanks for playing. You got your consolation prizes are at the door on your way home. Esther, you are it. I mean, madly in love, head over heels, whatever he was feeling, he saw Esther and it was over. And just like that, Esther becomes the queen. Can I ask you a question? How does a little orphan Jewish girl growing up in exile find herself the queen in the most powerful country in the world? How does that happen? This little rags to riches story, how does that happen? I'll tell you exactly how it happens. It happens because God is in control and God has a plan. That's exactly how that happens. And when we talk about old school faith and we talk about the kind of faith that we need today in this world that's rapidly changing, we need to wake up every day with this mentality. God is in control and God has a plan. And I wonder, do you live your life every day just like that? Here you have Esther who was in the right place at the right time for a reason that extends all the way to you and me. It's because God had a bigger plan for what was going on in the nation of Israel and he had Esther in the right place at the right time. That's how the little orphan girl grows up to be the queen in the most powerful country in the world. God's in control and God has a plan. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So Esther is now the queen. Life is good. King Xerxes is very happy with all of this. Everything seems to be great. That is until one day the king elevates a man to a leadership role who turns out to be a disaster for the nation. That man's name was Haman. And what can I tell you about Haman, except if the Bible had a top 10 list of the worst people described in the Bible, I promise you Haman would be on that list. It kind of feels odd to talk about people who are just rotten to the core, but let me just tell you, Haman was rotten to the core, and you're going to see it in, 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 in this uh, account of Esther. I've been trying to think, how could I describe Haman to you in a way that you would understand what he was like? And I'll give you this comparison. Haman in the Bible is the closest thing that you're going to get of Hitler in Germany. Now let that just sink in for a minute. Haman in the Bible, his life very much parallels Hitler in the Nazi Germany. And you're going to see why I say that in a moment. Haman was very powerful. He could do whatever he wanted. And you know what he wanted more than anything else and what he commanded people to do? He commanded everybody in the country that when they see him walking down the street, they had to bow down and worship him. Now, that's a crazy sick head, isn't it? How does somebody get there? Well, you remove God from everything, you get a depraved, depraved result. So here you have Haman, and as he walks through the streets, everybody has to stop what they're doing. They have to bow down and worship him. And one day he's walking, and he comes across, guess who? Mordecai, Esther's father-like cousin. And he refuses to bow down to him. It's very reminiscent of, remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow down to the image of, of the king? Here comes Haman, and all these people bow down, and Haman's like, or excuse me, Mordecai's like, I'm not doing that. 
Can you picture it? Can you picture a crowded street, a crowded area, and Mordecai is the only one standing, and Haman is mortified by Mordecai? Why would Mordecai not bow down to him? We don't know a whole lot about Mordecai's faith. We don't know if he is cut from the same vein as like a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know what it is. Maybe some Bible scholars have argued that uh, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekite people. And in the Old Testament, the Amalekites and the Jews were mortal enemies. And perhaps Mordecai's like, I will never take a knee to an Amalekite. That could have been it. It could also be that Mordecai's got enough of the Old Testament law still impressed upon him that maybe he's like, you know what? My God tells me not to bow down to any other idol or any other person, that he's supposed to be number one, and I'm not gonna bow down to him. Whatever the reason is, Mordecai's like, I'm doing it. And this makes Haman so angry, he just, he just decided, I'm gonna kill Mordecai, he's not gonna bow down to me, and I'm gonna be done with him. And that's the decision until... He discovers a little known fact about Mordecai's people. He learns that Mordecai is a Jew. And so Haman makes this decision. I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill his entire race of people. If you look to chapter 3, verse 6, it says that having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman is going to exterminate the Jews. And that's why I tell you that Haman in the Bible is very much like the Hitler that we know of Nazi Germany. He goes, I'm going to rid the world of these people. And so he goes to the king and he convinces King Xerxes, Esther's husband, who has no idea that his wife is a Jew, into passing a law that will allow for all the Jews to be terminated. Now look at chapter 3, verse 13. The order goes out. Here's what happens. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder all their goods. This, this makes me sick to my stomach. I mean, how brash is this, that we're going to pass a law, we're going to post it on all over the villages that on this day, if you're a Jew, you're done. It's hard to imagine. Look at verse 15. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So not only the sick order goes out, but Haman and the king sit down for drinks after they pass the law. Friends, I'm telling you, you remove God out of everything, you get a depraved result, and this is what we're seeing right here in Esther chapter 3. It's evil personified. You know, I was in Israel in 2017, and, and we spent, you know, eight days walking the streets of Jerusalem and the Galilee and everywhere, just walking where Jesus did. But we took about half a day, and we went to the Holocaust Museum in Israel. Boy, I'll tell you, that's right up there with one of the most moving experiences of my life. Six million Jews exterminated. And this museum's dead. It's, 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 you, can't, you almost can't go through it without crying. And I read Esther 3, and it takes me back to that moment walking through the Holocaust Museum going, how could anybody do this? 
So Haman orders all the Jews to be killed. And Mordecai, when he learns of this, the Bible says that Mordecai rips his clothes. He tears his clothes, which if, if you read the Bible, you know that happens often when somebody is experiencing such great grief. He tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he hangs outside of the gate just in a complete distraught phase. Esther hears that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, so she sends messengers to Mordecai to find out what's going on, and Mordecai sends a message back that, that her husband, the king, had ordered that all the Jews be annihilated. Esther had no idea that this was happening. She had no idea that her people were ordered to be killed. And then Mordecai, through a messenger, begs her to go talk to the king, and that's very problematic. Here's why that's problematic. Mordecai's like, Esther, you gotta do something. Go talk to your husband. And Esther, listen, here's the problem with that. First of all, Esther's never revealed that she's a Jew. So here's the danger. She goes and tells her husband, you ordered the extermination of all the Jews. And he's like, yeah, so what? And she might say, I'm a Jewish person. You just ordered my death. It's about sticking her neck on the line. Here's the second problem. In this culture, in this country, nobody approaches the king without being summoned first. I know it's weird for us, but that's how it was. And if you approach the king to make a request unannounced, he could do one of two things. If he lowers his scepter towards you, it's like him saying, come and I will allow you to make a request. But if you present yourself to the king and he doesn't lower his scepter to you, you are taken outside and executed. It's weird. I mean, this is not the world we live in, but that's the world they live in. So there's a risk. There's a huge risk for Esther, literally, to stick her neck on the line to bring this to the king's attention. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 13. This is where the whole story of Esther balances on this moment right here. So Mordecai sends word back to Esther. He says, Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I think Mordecai's response to Esther, it indicates that there is some faith in God, that there is some acknowledgement of God's master plan because as Esther, listen, even if you don't, God's gonna deliver us. It's like Mordecai saying, I know that God's not done with our people and if you don't do this, I know somehow this is gonna get figured out but you're probably gonna die before that. But maybe Esther, just maybe, you are a queen. How did you go from an orphan to the queen of Persia? How does that happen? Perhaps it is for such a time as right now. This is why you're here, to save our people. And I read that, and I'm like, oh my, God, that, is, that is some old school faith right there. Stick your life on the line to save your people. Why? Because you trust in God so much. And here's where I think old school faith rests. And I've been trying to define the elements of it for, in every sermon. Here, here's this one. What is old school faith? It's an old school faith that says, God has, is in control, God has a plan, and I just might be a part of that plan right now. That's faith. That's his old school faith. And I wonder, do you wake up every single day of your life going, God has a plan, God is absolutely in control, and he's gonna use my life to be a part of that plan, his master plan of what's going on. Imagine if that was your mentality, how would it change you going to work on Monday morning? You ever wondered, why am I in this job? 
Why do I do what I do? Why am I positioned the way that I am positioned at work? Could it be that God's more intricately involved in my life than I ever give him credit for? Perhaps God has put me in this position because he's in control and he has a plan and he wants me there at this time for such a time as this. Do you think that way? Why do you live where you live? Could it be that it's because you, it's more than the fact that you like your house? Could it be it's more than a reason the fact that you are attracted to Bella Vista because God maybe put something in your heart for this community? Could it very well be that you live where you are doing what you do around the people that you're around because God is in control and God has a plan and he's intricately connected in your life and he has gonna use you for such a time as this? Is this where your faith resides? For such a time as this? Our kids are involved, like your kids, in a whole bunch of different activities, and that puts Kirsten and I in a whole lot of different people's lives and in their path. Our son Brock plays three different sports every year. He loves football, basketball, and baseball, and every year he finds himself on a team that usually changes all the time. And my wife and I started to adopt this mentality a few years ago that, uh, God, maybe you have Brock on this team and you have us as parents with other parents because you're in control and you have a master plan and you may want to use us for such a time as this. Is that how you see your daily life? Because if it is, that's an old school faith. That's an Esther kind of faith. That's a Mordecai kind of faith for such a time as this. What if right now your greatest fear, what if your heaviest burden was given to you for such a time as this. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night burdened? Has that ever happened to you? Burdened. Like a burden that's so heavy you can't sleep. And maybe God puts some specific person on your mind. Maybe it's a friend who's going through an extremely difficult time. Maybe it's, maybe it's a family member. But did you ever think that maybe God is burdening you and has positioned you for such a time as this. That's old school faith. That is old school faith. Well, here's what happens. Esther chapter four, verse 16. This is the message that Esther sends back to Mordecai. She says, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And can you imagine if all of us adopted that mentality right now? Can you imagine what would happen in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our nations, in our world, if we would adopt Esther's commitment as our own? I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. I will stand up, and I will speak for the Lord. If I perish, I perish. If I get made fun of, I get made fun of. I will go and I will present and I will say what God wants me to do. I will live my life a certain way. I will behave this way because it honors God. And if I perish, I perish because I'm not living for this world anyway. I'm living for the Lord. Can you imagine? If that was our mentality every day, God has a plan. He's in control. And I just might be part of that plan. So Esther, she goes to the king unannounced, which is a big no-no. 
And, she, and I don't know exactly how this all came about. It's like, knock, knock, knock. Are you in there? You got a second? Yeah, I don't really know, but it was probably more formal than that. But they probably, Esther's here. Esther presents herself. And when the king sees her, he is very pleased. Now, this is the more evidence that God is in control because you just don't show up unannounced to the king. And he sees Esther and the king lowers his scepter to her. And it's just like in my family, when my wife shows up unannounced, I lower my scepter to her, and I say, you may come. Proceed. What is it that you, no, that's not at all how my family works, and it's not how your family works. But anyway, she goes to the king, and don't tell my wife I said that. So we go to the king, and he's like, he's pleased with her, and he's so pleased to see her, he's like, tell me what you want, make any request you want, even up to half my kingdom, it's all yours. Now, he, he really likes Esther. I'll make a long story short. We're gonna skip to the end here. Eventually, Esther tells the king all about this plan, how Haman tricked him. Eventually, by the time you get to chapter seven, it all comes out in the open, and King Xerxes is so furious, he has Haman executed, and Mordecai is put in a position where he is able with Esther to save the Jewish people. Again, you need to go read all the chapters of Esther. You will not be disappointed, I promise you. Esther was truly made queen for such a time as this. Why? It's because God is in control. God does have a plan, and she was the queen for such a time as this. And I wanna leave you with this today. Do you believe with all your heart that God is in control? Do you believe with all your heart that God has a plan? And do you believe, is your faith at a point that you are where you are because God wants you to play a role in what he's doing in his grand plan. And if that's where you're at, friends, that's some old school faith right there. That is some old school faith. Can I pray for you? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you for preserving this true story of Esther. Lord, in your, in your holy words so that we too can aspire to have the kind of trust that she did. Lord, my prayer is a simple one today, that as this world changes all around us, Lord, help us to stay strong in our commitment to, to you. And that, Lord, we will be men and women of great conviction. That, Lord, we will obey you rather than men's expectations. We're not gonna blend. We're gonna stay a holy people. That, that Lord, we will always be public with our faith. Lord, we will learn from the past and move forward in the direction you have us to go. And that we'll always see you, God, as the one who's in control, who has a plan for our lives, and you have uniquely positioned us for your purposes. Lord, I pray that we be a people who serve you just like that. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.